I'd like to introduce our next speaker uh, with great pleasure. Dr. Philip Meese is a clinical professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine here in Seattle. He's also the director of the Rheumatology Clinical Research Division of Swedish Medical Center. And his clinical practice is based um, at Seattle Rheumatology Associates. He conducts clinical trials of emerging therapies for rheumatic diseases, and he also uh, serves as a reviewer for a number of professional and clinical journals. Uh, would you please welcome Dr. Mies? Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I, um, I see that uh, everybody's taking care of their cell calls rather than hearing about arthritis, but oh well. So the, um, uh, I'm just curious, uh, I'm presuming, can I presume that everyone here has had some experience with psoriatic arthritis patients? So yeah, yeah you, I'm seeing positive head nods, raising of hands, okay. So basically my role over the next hour is to spend time with you talking about recognition of psoriatic arthritis in your psoriasis patients speaking something about the impact of, of that condition for them, uh, and then uh, thinking about how to assess them, assess their severity, uh, and strategize about appropriate treatment approaches. Uh, my, I'm, as you know, I'm a rheumatologist. I'm not a dermatologist. Uh, so I'm respectful of knowing that my limits uh, in what I can assess and treat uh, in terms of the patient's dermatologic issues and nail issues, which, uh, and what I find that I do here in Seattle and what increasingly we are uh, finding dermatologists uh, who have an interest uh, and, and allied health professionals working with dermatologists have an interest in uh, is teaming up with their local rheumatologist uh, and uh, in a teamwork or, or uh, tag team fashion, see, seeing patients. So it's very common for me to see a patient then for their next visit to be with the dermatology office and vice versa. So there's very much a, a collaborative process going on. Uh, and in my daytimer, I have the cell phone numbers for some of the key dermatologists that see psoriasis patients in, in Seattle. Uh, and hopefully they have me embedded within their smartphones as well. Let's see if my slides come up. Uh, these are my disclosures um, based on doing clinical trial work with a number of different companies that are developing emerging agents uh, in the inflammatory arthritis conditions. Okay, so let's take a moment uh, looking at some of these images. These are, uh, as you see, hands and feet. Uh, and on the upper left-hand image, you see a person that has very juicy inflammatory enlargement of their distal interphalangeal joints, the DIP joints. They also have important telltale features such as nail psoriasis, uh, and when you look on the skin, they have evidence of psoriasis. One of the key things about psoriatic arthritis is that the distal interphalangeal joint is frequently involved, whereas in rheumatoid arthritis, it is essentially never involved. Uh, the uh, 
MCP joints at the base of the finger or the proximal interphalangeal joints in the middle of the finger are more typically involved in rheumatoid arthritis. They can be in psoriatic arthritis too, but it's the DIP involvement. Now what is confusing is that you could look at these hands in an elderly person and they might end up having osteoarthritis because the DIP joints, the distal interphalangeal joints, are frequently involved in patients with osteoarthritis. The difference is going to be the inflammatory feel of the joint. The patient is going to probably express more pain. Uh, they're probably going to express the feeling of greater amount of stiffness, especially after being still overnight and, and lying in bed. Uh, and when you feel the joint, it will feel um, soft and squishy instead of being hardened the way it would feel with a patient who has that knobby change from osteoarthritis at the end of their fingers. And I think a little bit later on in this slide deck, I'll show you a characteristic osteoarthritis patient. So it's the feel of it and the squishiness of the underlying synovitis, the um, uh, uh, proliferation of cells in the lining tissue of the joint uh, that helps you distinguish between this and an osteoarthritic joint. Another key feature of psoriatic arthritis is the asymmetry of joint involvement uh, that's often present. Rheumatoid arthritis, if a person has two or three joints and their metacarpal joints on the left hand involved, almost identically those joints will be involved in the right hand. Whereas in psoriatic arthritis, it can be all over the map. Uh, there's not a, uh, a, a characteristic symmetry of the joint involvement. Another key finding is the phenomenon we call dactylitis, or sausage digit. And that is shown in the lower images on the left hand uh, uh, of the patient with the their fourth finger and on the left foot with their third toe. This involves swelling uh, and inflammation of the, not only the joints in the, in the digit, but also the tenosynovial tissues as well. So the whole ray, as it's called, the whole digit will become swollen. And this is a, a marker of greater severity and, and progressiveness of the disease as well. And then lastly from this slide, one of the important findings is the relationship between DIP involvement and nail involvement. In psoriatic arthritis, about 85 to 90% of patients will have nail involvement. If you do surveys of all psoriasis patients, only about 50 to 60% will have nail involvement. So there is a special relationship between nail disease and distal interphalangeal joint involvement. I'm gonna show you some uh, uh, interesting anatomic slides that uh, speak to that relationship. If you go drill down and do uh, imaging, here are some x-rays, and there are several interesting features noted here. In the lower image, we see significant dissolving of the bone and cartilage, creating what is known as a pencil and cup deformity, uh, so that there's whittling away of the um, of that one aspect of the, of the joint, uh, and it nestles in, and that, that's going to end up being a flail joint. It has no good articulation. In contrast, in the image above it, you see a process we call ankylosis going on, where there's actual 
formation of bone uh, uh, in the form of this kind of calcific whiskery uh, calcification known as osteitis. And in that one joint there, there's no joint at all. It's ankylosed. Now you might say, okay, okay, so what? It turns out that these are quite different pathologic process, processes. One is erosion, dissolving of bone and cartilage. The other is formation of bone. And what's, what's interesting is that we see both going on in the same patient. Whereas in rheumatoid arthritis, we tend to see just the erosion part. And in a condition called ankylosing spondylitis, which is more common in young males, and involves the spine, you see freezing or, or a, a complete uh, ankylosis of the spine going on. And so in psoriatic arthritis is sort of halfway in between these two diseases with both erosive and bone formation or osteoproliferation going on. Here's um, someone with more destructive changes and you can see that the bone and cartilage of all of their distal joints in the feet are gone, uh, especially on the left-hand side. There's just nothing there except some soft tissue. Uh, and this has been uh, caused by uh, proliferation of a number of effector cells like chondrocytes and osteoclasts, which has dissolved the bone and cartilage, uh, having been turned on by molecular messengers like TNF, IL-6, and so on. Another unique feature about psoriatic arthritis is the tendency to have inflammation wherever tendons or ligaments or joint capsule fibers insert into bone. The anatomic site where this occurs is called the enthesium, enthesium, E-N-T-H-E-S-I-U-M, and inflammation there is, is known as enthesitis. It's very common. Uh, it's seen in something like 40 to 80% of psoriatic arthritis patients. They often don't really understand or recognize it. Uh, they, they, it, it. It comes in as a complaint of the young male who's got chronic Achilles tendonitis, which he attributes to playing pickup basketball or hiking. Uh, and you see a flagrant case there with swelling at the Achilles tendon insertion. Most often you don't see that kind of inflammatory change, but it's just reported as pain and you'll pick it up when you palpate the tendon insertion. And on the right hand you see a cartoon depicting the inflammatory cell infiltrate at the site where that occurs and in an image from one of our patients, uh, the a photomicrograph of that inflammation. This is not seen in rheumatoid arthritis. It's not seen in osteoarthritis. Uh, it's really uh, uh, pretty unique to psoriatic arthritis and a telltale sign. Some of the common places include the Achilles tendon insertion site, the plantar fascia insertion site at the heel, but also around the kneecap, for example, where the patellar tendon inserts into the knee, or around the uh, lateral epicondyle at the elbow, uh, or uh, around the rib cage. So think about it, uh, all the gristle of the uh, ligament insertions around the ribs, uh, is, they're, re they're reflective of sites of uh, enthesial insertion. 
And so it's not unusual for you to treat a patient and the chest pain that they have sort of had as a niggling issue uh, and they really didn't want to bring it up because they were concerned that their wife might think it was angina, uh, turns out to be inflammatory enthesitis in the chest wall. We've seen some odd presentations of this, including a major football player who presented with groin pain and they thought he had a hernia from football practice and so on. As it turns out, it was the symphysis pubis where ligaments were inserting into the pubic bone right in the uh, uh, center of uh, the pubic area. So that uh, you, there are all kinds of odd um, presentations of enthesitis. This is a, a cartoon skeleton that shows you uh, some of the common places where enthesial pain may be reported. And then, of course, the skin and nail disease, and I've already made a comment about the nail disease. Now, one important thing about psoriasis, as you know, is that when it clears, it clears completely. It may lead a little bit of hemosiderin stain, but it doesn't leave scar tissue. That's very different in the joint and musculoskeletal system, where once a joint is damaged, there is no reparation. So it makes all the more reason for you to be screening your patients for smoldering, for evidence of smoldering synovitis, um, because that joint, once that damage is done, it can't be repaired. Here are some images from the spine. Uh, uh, spondylitis can occur. Uh, you see the pelvis there, and where it says three, uh, that uh, sacroiliac joint happens to be severely narrowed and inflamed as evidenced by the white uh, sclerotic change around the joint seen on x-ray. And in, uh, the zero represents a completely normal sacroiliac joint on the other side, underlining the asymmetry of the presentation. The uh, lateral view of the spine uh, shows these um, beaks, uh, sort of like bird beaks, that we call syndesmophytes that are coming off from the anterior aspect of the vertebra. And eventually, with time, in a person with severe spondylitis, this can lead to some fusion of the spine and limitation of range of motion. And gets back to that, what I was referring to earlier about the osteoproliferative change. The eye. Uh, so and, uh, acute uh, anterior uveitis can occur. And sometimes our patients will come to us referred by the ophthalmologist because they've had recurrent uveitis, uh, and then the ophthalmologist finally tumbles to asking about their skin or joints and discovering that they have psoriasis or uh, arthritis symptomatology. Uh, and this is an important area for treatment because uh, un inadequately managed uveitis can over time lead to pressure changes in the eye and uh, permanent eye damage. So how do we classify psoriatic arthritis in the constellation of other forms of arthritis that's shown and other diseases? That's shown here with these overlapping uh, uh, circles uh, showing the relationship between psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and then on the left, other forms of spondylarthritis, as they're called, uh, including ankylosing spondylitis, something called undifferentiated spondylarthritis, the arthritis associated with inflammatory bowel disease, something called reactive arthritis 
that used to be called writer's syndrome, but no longer is that term is used. Uh, and that is a form of spondyloarthritis that occurs in people who have been exposed to various infectious antigens such as chlamydia, salmonella, shigella, uh, turista from Mexico, uh, or uh, Yersinia or Campylobacter infections. And then if they have the right genetic type, they may develop a chronic arthritis as a result of those infections. These diseases are all linked genetically, uh, and uh, there is a um, common overlap between uh, these, these various uh, conditions. Now, one of the, uh, there are a couple of points that are made on this slide in the, in the bottom bullets. Uh, the estimated prevalence uh, for, uh, sorry, uh, for, excuse me, for all of the spondyloarthropathies that I've just listed for, uh, that are listed above, is somewhere between 0.346 and 1.31 percent of the population. Uh, and so this means uh, that uh, slightly over one in a hundred people will have a spondyloarthritis. The range for rheumatoid arthritis is 0.6 to 1 percent. The prevalence range estimates for spondyloarthritis are wider than that for rheumatoid arthritis because it's not as well studied. So that means less accurate population reports. And there's even an, a more recent study that John Ravel has led, uh, a population survey that suggests that up to 1.4% of the po population of the United States will have a spondyloarthritis. So this is, these are not uncommon diseases. I think one of the reasons why rheumatoid arthritis is more commonly on the tongues of people and in minds of people is because it's a single diagnosis, whereas these various spondyloarthritides are spread out amongst five different subtypes, uh, any one of which is, is not as common as rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, but they're really quite, quite common out there, and I think many of them are remain undiagnosed probably in your own practices, and, and you're not even or you don't even realize that these patients are there. They're certainly there in many primary care practices or orthopedic practices. Uh, for example, young men coming in with uh, chronic low back pain uh, and um, people that are, have developed uh, transient inflammatory arthropathies after a, an infection, let's say. Uh, this slide just makes the point that I made earlier that if you boil down all the various prevalence uh, estimates, uh, the overall um, prevalence is somewhere in the 25 to 30 percent range of psoriasis patients. And psoriasis occurs in 2 to 3 percent of the general population. I draw your attention to the last bullet point on this slide, and this is pretty fresh information. Uh, there are two articles that are currently in press in the Annals of Rheumatic Disease that uh, speak to this. One from a very large population of U.S. nurses that's being, that comes out of the Harvard uh, epidemiology group, and then another one from northern uh, England uh, that's being uh, studied by a University of Pennsylvania group. And what they have shown is that not only is obesity a risk factor for the development of psoriasis, but, in, in more, uh, but importantly, 
if you have an obese psoriasis patient, that they have a higher risk of developing psoriatic arthritis. And then most recently, a study that was presented in June at our European rheumatology meeting, uh, a group put a, a, a obese psoriatic arthritis group on either a standard diet or a relatively starvation diet, what they, which they called a hypocaloric diet. And if they lost at least uh, 10, I think it was 10 points on their BMI scale, uh, that they uh, had a greater likelihood of achieving remission when going on an anti-TNF medicine. So although I think it's very early, and this is just abstract data, it's not yet published, it's interesting that there might even be a modifiable risk factor for development of psoriatic arthritis and maybe even treatment. Uh, this spe just speaks to the total array of studies that have looked at the frequency of psoriatic arthritis in the population, and then the most recent of which was a large study uh, known as the PREPARE study from Pfizer that looked at about 1,000 patients coming into dermatology offices and then subsequently evaluated by rheumatologists, and the diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis was made in 30% of those patients, half of whom had not had a previous diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis before their rheumatology evaluation. Now, another point that's been emerging, and this all speaks to the fact that there may be more patients than you realize with the, with the condition, if you do highly sensitive imaging studies, such as MRI scanning of peripheral joints or enthesial attachments or ultrasound evaluation of these, that you'll find even a higher um, uh, prevalence, up to the 65 to 70 percent range of imaging abnormalities. Now, many of these are, not, are patients that are not expressing clinical problems, so you might say, so what? Uh, and I might respond, well, you're right, they're, they're, so what? Uh, if these patients aren't expressing their problem clinically, we don't want to um, get all uh, necessarily hot and bothered about that, but it does bespeak the fact that there's probably something going on at a tissue level that we may not see clinically. Uh, this uh, just shows uh, some bone scan, old bone scan data uh, showing light up in asymptomatic patients, uh, uh, psoriasis patients, and then some MRI and ultrasound changes of the joints and enthesial attachments. Okay, so here is uh, data from a survey that was done amongst U.S. Uh, rheumatology practices and they asked the question, of all the inflammatory arthritis patients that you're seeing in your clinic, what percentage falls out into what categories? And about 60% turned out to be rheumatoid arthritis cases, about 40% were spondyloarthritis cases, and of these, the majority were psoriatic arthritis in that uh, subset. What is the classification criteria for psoriatic arthritis? This is shown here. It is known as the CASPAR criteria. This was a study that was conducted about a decade ago. Uh, there were 31 centers involved, including ours here in Seattle and, and two others in the United States. What we did was we studied about 1,000 patients, half of whom had what we considered psoriatic arthritis and half of whom had some other inflammatory arthritis. 
in order to um, fall to be positive uh, for the P for PSA in this criteria set, first of all, this stem at the top, it's, you have to judge that the person has an inflammatory joint, spine, or enthesial disease. So you have to go through the judgment of saying, does this patient's joint problem have the characteristics of an inflammatory arthritis versus a degenerative arthritis? So that would be things like prolonged morning stiffness, persistence of pain, possibly improvement with activity and worsening with rest, um, response to various types of medications, uh, and then, um, and so the, the features of inflammation. Uh, and then you can apply the five elements that are below that. If they get three points, then they qualify. Two points go to current psoriasis. So most people qualify based on current psoriasis and a negative rheumatoid factor test in the blood. By the way, by saying that, you don't have to have a negative rheumatoid factor. About 6% or so of the patients in this study who had psoriatic arthritis had a positive rheumatoid factor. So that does not completely rule it in or out. But it just doesn't give it a point if they have a positive rheumatoid factor. So if they had nail changes, evidence of dactylitis, or this interesting new bone formation uh, that I showed you earlier, and showing here again around the joint, then, uh, then these add up points. And this criteria set yields a very high specificity of 99% and a sensitivity of 91%. So this, these are good criteria. I'm not gonna belabor the, I'm gonna move on for sake of time since we got started a little late. This is our differential diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. I've already alluded to some of this. I think for you, probably the most important element of the differential diagnosis is osteoarthritis. And that's based on this appearance of the hands in a patient with osteoarthritis. So it's hard to tell by just looking at a picture, but if you were to feel these DIP uh, joints at the ends of the fingers, you would, it would feel hard and bony. These are known as Heberden nodes, uh, and they're sort of hard, calcific uh, outpouchings from the, the DIP joint. And if you were to feel the proximal interphalangeal joint, for example, the bilateral fourth or fifth ones there, those are known as Bouchard's nodes. So a French guy got his name on that one. And uh, the, um, again, very hard feeling. But you might, if you just glance at these, have a hard time distinguishing this from psoriatic arthritis. Now there's some very characteristic x-ray changes that make a difference. So this is something that a rheumatologist generally can easily sort out uh, the, uh, the difference. Uh, there also will unlikely be significant morning stiffness uh, and it tends to be more slowly progressive uh, than psoriatic arthritis and not nearly as painful. Rheumatoid arthritis, high levels of uh, rheumatoid factor or CCP, uh, the uh, radiographs look different, uh, the uh, arthritis tends to be more symmetric, uh, and ankylosing, don't worry, I, I would worry less about this. Gout, though, that's an interesting one because in psoriasis, because of uh, cellular turnover, you can see more often elevated levels of uric acid in the blood. 
and sometimes a PSA patient will present with monoarticular or oligoarticular involvement of the lower extremities. Uh, and so you're going, gee, and this person with a uric acid level of 8.6, who's got a painful, swollen big toe, is this PSA or gout? The really definitive way of making that distinction, unfortunately, is to stick a needle in that joint and get some fluid out, which is painful as heck, uh, and then uh, have it looked at under the, uh, in the lab for uric acid crystals or crystals of something called calcium pyrophosphate, the other major kind of crystalline arthritis. So that's the gold standard way of making the distinction. Uh, you can have patients with both PSA and gout. They, there's no reason they can't simultaneously exist. Same with osteoarthritis and psoriatic arthritis. So it may be that you'll need to have the help of your friendly rheumatologist down the hall, hopefully they're friendly, uh, to help you sort, sort that out. And gout can be prevented by giving medicines that lower uric acid levels. Uh, it can also be pretty easily controlled with a little steroid injection into the joint or a quick tapering course of prednisone uh, or use of colchicine or um, anti-inflammatory medicines. Here's what a normal joint looks like. Uh, yeah, the, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I have a, let's see if I have a pointer. Sort of unfair to, to whichever side of the room, but this is the cartilage. This is bone, the two different bones. So cartilage bone, and this is a completely normal looking joint. Here is an osteoarthritic joint showing you that calcific sort of node off to the left hand side there, and then you can see where the cartilage is completely eroded away there. And then this is an inflammatory arthritis such as psoriatic or rheumatoid with this incredible um, proliferation of inflammatory lymphocytes, dendritic cells, macrophages, all the orchestra of cells that are involved in, in, in the inflammatory process. Okay, I'm going to take, make a few comments about pathophysiology. I'm going to have to move along um, more quickly here to get to treatment. So this is the um, a group of uh, inflammatory cells is noted and then various cytokines or molecular messengers produced by those cells, which in turn interact with effector cells like chondrocytes uh, and um, uh, osteoclast, which then in turn erode uh, cartilage and bone. The same cells and cytokines are at play uh, in the skin for the most part, except for the osteoclasts, which are bone-specific. Uh, and they're responding to the same cellular signals. By and large, many of the uh, appro appropriate therapies will act similarly on the cells and cytokines in these different tissue compartments, but occasionally you'll find differences. So, for example, we may have a patient who responds wonderfully to an anti-TNF in the skin, but not in the joints or vice versa. We've certainly seen patients who are treated with the uh, drug ustekinumab or Stellara who respond wonderfully in the skin but not in the joints. And there's a new group of medicines coming along, the IL-17 inhibitors, that are incredible in the skin. I mean, they 
you ha practically just have to breathe the medicine and, it, uh, and the skin lesions just go away. That you haven't, uh, unless you're doing research, you haven't seen these yet. But, but, we're, uh, but in the joints, they uh, take longer to work and they may, may not work as well as, say, the anti-TNFs. So although there are important linkages between the skin and the joints and the enthesium and the bone, there are also potentially some differences as well. So the same medicines may not work in the uh, different compartments as well. Another interesting feature pathophysiologically is the incredible tortuosity of blood vessels as shown in this arthroscope of a patient with PSA, their knee uh, versus RA. We don't exactly know what this means, but it's just an interesting feature of the, of the disease. I've shown you some images of enthesitis before, and now just some more. Here's some MRI images uh, that, that are encircled, showing on the edges of the joints the tendon and ligament structures that are lighting up in an, uh, you know, with a T2 stir uh, MRI image. Here is an example of the same thing showing light up in bone, joint, and the ligamentous tissue here. And then after 12 weeks of, a t of an anti-TNF agent showing a complete resolution of that inflammatory change. Uh, I'm gonna push ahead again for sake of time. And then here is the interesting relationship between the, na uh, the distal interphalangeal joint and the nail. Lower power view on the left, higher power view on the right, and you see these ligaments that are coursing up and embracing the nail bed. And so one of the concepts that we now have is that some aspects of the nail disease may actually be a form of enthesitis, and that there are inflammatory cells that are tracking here and setting up shop uh, at the place where ligaments uh, interact with the nail bed leading to these kinds of changes uh, that are shown here. And then lastly, I just want to comment on bone. I've already spoken about the uh, incredible lysis that you can sometimes see of, of bony tissue and cartilage, leading to this kind of appearance, which is known as arthritis mutilans, where there's a completely flail joint at the distal and sometimes proximal interphalangeal joints. And this just shows you some MRI images of uh, the light up in bone, where inflammatory infiltrate uh, of lymphocytes and osteoclast is present, uh, as well as in the joint and the enthesial insertion sites. I'm going to skip through this uh, just for sake of time. And we know that uh, some of these cells that are infiltrating the bone can have dramatic reduction when you use anti-TNF medicines. All right. Now, in the remaining time, I'd like to focus in on uh, treatment approaches. So, as you're facing your patient, you are asking yourself a number of questions. First of all, is this patient likely to progress aggressively with their disease and have some of the worst kind of changes that were shown previously? Or are they going to have a very mild course, little gentle arthritis here and there that's not destructive uh, and could be adequately treated with anti-inflammatory medicines alone or an occasional injection of a, of a, of a steroid agent? Uh, so I'm going to address that in the next slide or two. Uh, 
we're going to talk about the different therapies uh, for this. And then as we're thinking about applying these various therapies, we've got to think about not only the efficacy and safety of the different drugs, but how, what, what's the likely uh, yield of improvement of quality of life and function. Uh, are we going to use an agent like a, a non-steroidal that may only achieve modest improvement in a more severe patient? as opposed to somebody that can have a more dramatic improvement with, a, with an immunosuppressive medication, and then weighing that against uh, the risk factors. And then some patients may prefer sub-Q, others may uh, administration, some oral, others may prefer IV, especially if they're Medicare patients, because of the better economic treatment of IV administration which I realize is not as easy for you all in your clinics because you aren't usually set up to do IV administration. But in most rheumatology practices, they are set up to do IV administration because so many of our meds are given in that fashion or you can set up in the local hospital. And then, of course, economic realities. Can this person in front of you afford uh, these medicines? And increasingly, uh, various companies are making it easier for patients, either by doing research on how to get the medicines cheapest for them uh, and also doing things like giving them coupon cards uh, to give uh, forgiveness of their copays and that sort of thing. So this is a list of uh, features which predict more aggressive progression. Lack of response to NSAIDs, uh, higher number of joints involved, presence of erosions on, a, on initial x-ray, having an elevated sed rate or C-reactive protein, or the patient saying, I just can't function very well uh, when they come in to your office. And then obviously, as you're tracking them over time, uh, having inadequate response to uh, therapy trials and having progression of erosions on x-ray. More than 50% of patients will ultimately develop deforming arthritis and another key point to be aware of is the last bullet point. The mortality of PSA patients is about uh, 60, 70 percent higher uh, than the general population in terms of early mortality. Why is this? Mostly because of accelerated atherosclerosis. So earlier heart attack and stroke uh, and we know that that's true for both psoriasis alone. That's Joel Gelfand's work from University of Pennsylvania. Three times uh, risk. Uh, and we are learning this for psoriatic arthritis, i.e. that inflammation begets layering of atherosclerosis. And so one of the reasons that we're tracking patients in registry studies uh, is to see if we can document, like we have in rheumatoid arthritis, that by more aggressive treatment with drugs like methotrexate or anti-TNFs, that you can actually, actually diminish mortality uh, uh, rates uh, from heart attack and stroke. Here is a table which summarizes an, uh, an exercise we did in a uh, uh, a, a, a research group that I'm part of that uh, looked at the evidence for various treatments and what basically what this says is that if you look at the different compartments of the disease that we've talked about, the arthritis, skin and nail disease, the spine, the fat joint, uh, fat digits or enthesitis, 
we have good evidence that the anti-TNF medicines will be beneficial in all of those domains. We have only evidence that the oral DMARDs like methotrexate will work in the arthritis and the skin, uh, and either they haven't been studied in the other compartments or they have been studied and shown not to be effective. And then for milder disease using anti-inflammatories, intraarticular steroids, topical creams, uh, and light therapy. I don't expect you to memorize anything from this uh, table other than that this is a treatment grid that we've developed for rheumatologists, uh, and it reminds them to look and, uh, and evaluate each of the compartments that are noted on the left-hand side, that is, not just to focus on joints, but also to think about these other uh, domains that I've been speaking about. And when you think about impact of the disease, not just how many joints are involved, but actually how is this impairing their quality of life or function and their ways of measuring this. And so the classic example would be a patient who's a violinist for the Seattle Symphony who happens to have dactylitis of their left fourth finger, which is their uh, fingering hand, uh, and that may be their only site of inflammation, but it, is, it ends up being severe if it is not responding to simple anti-inflammatories or methotrexate, and it's impairing their function and ability to their livelihood. So taking into account impact of dactylitis or enthesitis or spine disease, even if it seems more limited. And this is what we're shooting for with our therapies, having a remission, a relative remission state with virtually no swollen or tender joints, very low skin disease activity, very low enthesial activity, and improved function and quality of life. Okay, this is a list of some of the uh, simpler oral medications that have been used historically, the non-steroidals, steroids, and the various DMARDs, or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, uh, that are listed here. Uh, sulfasalazine, uh, which is usually used one gram twice a day and works in the joints sometimes, but not in the skin. Methotrexate, which you all are familiar with. Leflunamide or Areva, which is used as a dose of 20 milligrams per day, very similar to methotrexate. I don't expect you all to know about leflunamide. It's something that was introduced in rheumatology for rheumatoid arthritis just before the anti-TNFs were introduced back in the late 90s. And so, um, but it, it is, a, a, can work in both the joints and the skin. We don't, as rheumatologists, tend to use cyclosporin uh, it works well in the skin, not very well in the joints, uh, and you all may have used it in, that, in the skin context. It does have renal toxicity and blood pressure toxic, uh, 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 elevation issues, so that's why we uh, don't use it as much. And then I put a question mark after anti-malarials. These are medicines like Plaquenil, or, which is also known as hydroxychloroquine, which is used in rheumatoid arthritis or lupus treatment. We tend not to use it much in psoriatic arthritis. Uh, uh, not very effective. Methotrexate I want to spend a moment on. Uh, because of this particular trial, uh, so methotrexate, believe it or not, there have only been really two studies of methotrexate in psoriatic arthritis. One was published back in 1984 
by my mentor here in Seattle, Bob Wilkins, who studied as a 37 patients, very small trial, used in one arm of the study 7.5 milligrams a week. This is when we were just tiptoeing into use of methotrexate in rheumatology. And then the other dose was 15 milligrams a week. And it didn't show benefit in that small trial. This was a larger trial done in uh, uh, England called the methotrexate and psoriatic arthritis trial. And the take-home message from this trial, which took five years to enroll because physicians were said, why do I want to study a drug that we know kind of works in psoriatic arthritis? And indeed, it was a crummy study. A third of the patients dropped out. Most of them had pretty mild disease, so it was hard to show a change from the, uh, from the drug. And so on multiple measures, methotrexate failed in this study. Uh, and so you would say, okay, methotrexate doesn't work in psoriatic arthritis. But then we have a study like this one, the RESPOND trial that was done in Russia uh, in patients with earlier disease. They had about three years duration of disease. And look at the green bars. These are uh, methotrexate-treated patients, and they were having pretty decent responses uh, in the methotrexate alone arm. In the infliximab or Remicade plus methotrexate arm, they were having humongous responses in, both, in, the, in the joints here. Uh, so it just, I think, bespeaks the fact that if you treat earlier in the disease, you get better results, but it also suggests that you get, can get some response from methotrexate. So it still remains something that insurance companies insist that we try, try first before using an anti-TNF. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so it can work, but there are issues with methotrexate, and that's highlighted in yellow here. These are from old studies that uh, look at methotrexate uh, and, uh, used in psoriasis versus rheumatoid patients uh, doing annual liver biopsies. Can you imagine a, a volunteer in a trial being willing to have annual liver biopsies? Uh, and uh, it showed that there was about a three times likelihood of having fibrosis if you had psoriasis compared to rheumatoid arthritis in patients treated chronically with methotrexate. Why might this be? Well, one reason is that the average psoriasis patients, pa patient in the United States weighs about 90, 95 kilograms. The average rheumatoid patient weighs about the same as you all weigh, which is around 70 kilograms or so, or actually many of you are even less than 70. Uh, and uh, what happens with that extra 30, or 20, excuse me, kilograms, is a lot of that is fat that's packed into liver cells. And so people have this thing called uh, hepatic steatosis, uh, and if you then add to that, giving them a, hepatotox a potentially hepatotoxic medicine, it increases their chance for uh, LFT abnormalities and uh, progressive fibrosis. So we're more cautious uh, in the psoriasis pa patient population. We've abandoned, I don't know if you're aware of it, but the AAD has abandoned the idea of having to have liver biopsies every 1.5 grams of, of methotrexate, but still it's important to monitor. And there's, I know, a reluctance um, on the part of many 
in the dermatology community to use methotrexate in a prolonged fashion for this reason. Okay, now we're going to get into uh, the anti-TNFs. This is just to say that in this unreadable slide uh, that the patient populations in these various trials was very similar. They had very active disease. Um, and these are the results that have been seen. And I've tried to summarize a huge amount of data uh, into a single slide. And basically the take-home message is that when you look at this, this thing called the ACR 20, 50, and 70 responses, you get great responses with the anti-TNFs with, uh, with all of the agents uh, that are listed here, adalimumab, which is known as Humira, Etanerceptor, Imbrel, Golimumab or Symphony, Infliximab or Rimicade, and then this new agent that you all haven't seen yet called Sertilizumab, and we've just shown data with that one uh, showing uh, good effect. I think I'm getting a little warning here to my left. So I'll try to move along uh, quickly because I want to get to safety. Uh, we also see very good results in the skin, as you know, uh, with a little bit better with the monoclonal antibody construct than the soluble receptor, which is a tannercept. But if you double the dose of a tannercept, then you get better, much better responses uh, in the skin. If you look at these other domains, enthesitis, dactylitis, function quality of life, all good improvement uh, with, uh, with the anti-TNFs. Here's a little point about safety that I want to stress. This is a, an interesting uh, meta-analysis done with Humira where they looked at all of their trials and different indications. And if you'll look, focus in on serious infections in the psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis columns versus rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's, you see much less rates of serious infections. And this is partly because the patients are generally less sick than rheumatoid and they're, they're, you're not seeing as much concomitant prednisone or other immunosuppressive drug use. And in general, some of the safety features that we know are uh, an issue with anti-TNFs tend to be a little bit better with psoriatic arthritis patients. So that's a little bit of silver lining on, on the safety uh, information. Uh, I will want to underline the, a couple of other points here besides serious infection. By the way, the way serious infection is um, noted here is per, per 100 patient years. And I think this is a fairly good way of quantitating this for patients. So I tell them roughly the rate of serious infections if you're a rheumatoid patient is somewhere around four to five per 100 patient years. And they look at me quizzically and I go, okay, fair enough. If you were taking this drug for 100 years, we would expect you to have about four or five serious infections. They still look at me quizzically. Uh, so then I say, okay, then if there were 100 patients taking this drug for a year, then we would expect four to five people to have a serious infection. When they hear that, that actually is somewhat reassuring to them because that doesn't, isn't actually that big a number. Uh, and then even less with psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. The other thing that we obviously stress is the whole deal about TB, and uh, we have a lot of people traveling back and forth from Seattle to endemic, like Microsoft employees that work part-time in India, uh, and so you have to be really careful about the whole TB thing, and, and in the, if we get a few moments for questions, I'll be happy to address how we monitor and screen for that.
So uh, there are a number of other drugs coming along uh, that uh, are being assessed. I've already mentioned the IL-17 agents and the IL-12-23 agent, which is known as istekinumab or Stellara, which is showing great data in the skin, not quite as good data in the joints, but still okay. So uh, it's something that, we'll, that uh, Janssen is seeking uh, uh, approval in psoriatic arthritis for that uh, particular drug. Uh, and then there are a number of other agents that are going to be coming along, including some interesting new oral medications. Uh, several of these have efficacy very much like the anti-TNFs, the JAK inhibitors. Uh, and uh, so that's something that's very exciting that's coming along that will be oral. There's also a drug known as a Primalast, which is a PDE4 inhibitor, which will likely be available uh, in about a year which is oral and pretty safe uh, and has some efficacy in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So there, for those patients that aren't responding adequately to the uh, methotrexate or anti-TNFs, there are other agents that are coming along. I think I'll stop here uh, and then open up to any questions that you might have. So please do ask me some questions like about TB monitoring, that sort of thing. Yes. I've started using the quantiferon gold test yes. um, screening for TB, and I yeah. seem to be getting a lot of positives lately, a lot more than I have in, with just PPDs. I've had three in the last year of people who've never, they don't have any signs or symptoms of TB, they never have any exposure that they know of. So then I send, a, send them to infectious disease, they put them on INH therapy. How do you monitor those people after they've been on INH therapy because um, my understanding is that if you're on the biologics, you're more likely to get TB outside of the lungs, and so a chest X-ray may not uh, screen very well. This is a, I thank you for that question, and you're very smart about all this. You obviously know what you're talking about. So um, the first comment I'm gonna make is that we've moved beyond the quantiferon gold in our clinic. We're now using something called a T-spot, which is now available in the U.S. And uh, it's actually got a better, slightly better uh, rate of false positive, false negative, blah, 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 compared to the quantiferon gold. Um, it's also easier to handle and, uh, than the quantiferon gold uh, in the lab. The, I, I have to say I would give, I would trust the quantiferon gold in your situation more than I would the PPD because there, there can be so many false negatives with PPDs uh, because of energy. And the, um, the, the dramatic data on that comes from Peru where about three quarters of the population has latent TB. And when you get an older patient with rheumatoid arthritis, only about 25% of them will have a positive PPD, whereas the quantiferon gold or T-spot will be up in the 60 70% range. So I don't, I know, I know you're puzzled about where the, the heck their tuberculous organism may have come from, but I would tend to concur that they needed INH treatment, or, or I would have done that. Uh, and then what tends to happen is that the, theoretically, the quantiferon gold assay will ultimately 
show negative in those patients. It may not immediately, but it becomes squirrelier for monitoring. Uh, I would end up trusting that the INH is, um, uh, is, has done its job in the short run, and then if they spend a lot of time in India or something like that in the future and come back, uh, then I'm probably going to end up doing the T-spot in those patients. Uh, over here. I've seen um, several patients treated uh, for their Crohn's disease with infliximab that have gone on to develop psoriasis. Can you comment as, as to why a medication that could possibly treat that condition would cause it? Perfect. Thanks for that question. So um, there, the most uh, recent article on this subject is one that was uh, uh, published by a young woman who's a rheumatologist at the Army Base, Brooks Army Base down in uh, San Antonio. And she collected about 360 case reports of psoriasis induced by anti-TNF medicines. About two-thirds of them were pustular um, psoriasis on the palms and soles, and about a third were standard plaque psoriasis. And they occurred in people that had Crohn's or rheumatoid, et cetera, that didn't have a history of psoriasis. Infliximab is a little bit more at fault in these case reports, but all of the anti-TNFs can do this. The theory behind this is the following. This is a theory. Don't take it as gospel. The idea is that uh, we have a certain ratio of myeloid dendritic cells to plasmacytoid dendritic cells in our systems. Uh, let's say two-thirds, one-third. When you take an anti-TNF medicine, in some people, that ratio gets shifted and there are slightly, the ratio diminishes between the myeloid and the plasmacytoid. The latter dendritic cells are producing an excessive amount of interferon alpha, which can then generate various autoimmune situations in the genetically predisposed individuals, such as lupus, uh, demyelination, or psoriasis. So it's the way I, the analogy I use with the patient is like you have an old inner tube with a little defect in the rubber, and you blow it up, and it's, it's blown out in a little bubble there. So you're pushing on one part of the immune system and getting a reaction on another uh, that isn't what you want. And so that's sort of the, uh, a, a homespun explanation for it. So uh, what was interesting in these case reports is that it didn't necessarily preclude being able to use either another anti-TNF medicine or even treating that particular eruption and then coming back to the same anti-TNF. So many of the people I talked to about it, it's sort of ho-hum. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean can't ever use an anti-TNF again. So, um, I, but I probably would switch agents uh, if that uh, occurred. In the interest of time, I'm sorry, we just want to stay on a schedule. If Dr. Meese doesn't mind, maybe we can ask questions outside if we have any. Okay. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you.